Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this Easter edition of Family Stories. I hope the Easter Bunny brought you everything you asked him for. Set aside your chocolate eggs, though, and prepare for a cracking batch of wartime stories direct from our We Have Ways listeners. The first story is from independent company member Nick Griffiths. He writes... Dear Al and James, I'd like to tell you about my granddad, Corporal Glyn Griffiths. He joined the RAF in 1939, training as an aircraft fitter in RAF St. Athen, Cosford and Pershaw. In 1941, he sailed to Singapore via southern Iraq and was based at RAF Selatar. Some of the aircraft he mentioned working on were Brewster Buffaloes, Fairy Fulmars and Hurricanes. When the northern airfields were bombed in January 1942, Grandad was playing a squadron football match. Unsure of where to go, he took cover in the Goldmouth. As the Japanese invasion loomed, he helped to push the squadron's trucks and staff cars into the harbour, and he witnessed the raffle statue in town being painted red, white and blue. 
Later that month, he was part of an ad hoc group of RAF ground crew under squadron leader Gregson. They called themselves Gregson's Grenadiers, as Gregson was a former guardsman. I suspect their role was ground defence, as Grandad mentioned facing a Banzai charge on the airfield perimeter. In the early days after surrender, British personnel were confined to their airfields. One day, during a working party to clear the jungle for the Japanese, he and some comrades took a chance and slipped away into the undergrowth, eventually reaching the coast where they hitched a ride on a junk to Palembang, Sumatra. When they landed, they left the town and found a hideaway, moving by night. From Palembang, they caught another ride on a junk going to Java. I remember him saying they were island hopping, a few days ahead of the Japanese, always hiding by day and moving by night with help from the local population. Eventually they managed to reach Timor and again went into hiding during the day. A boat was found in Timor and after more days at sea they reached land. This, unbeknownst to Grandad, was northern Australia. Locals took him to a military base and from there they returned by ship to Colombo in Ceylon and rejoined a squadron. He spent the rest of the war there. Grandad returned to his small North Wales town in 1945. In a graphic illustration of the reach of the Second World War, his older brother, Idris, and brother-in-law, Howell, had both been killed as Royal Welch Fusiliers in the 53rd Division. Idris was killed in northern France in September 1944, and Howell was killed on the second day of Operation Veritable in February 1945, and is buried in Reichswald Military Cemetery. I loved listening to Grandad's stories, and I think that's what prompted me to join the forces. I served 26 years in the Royal Marines, the high point of which was meeting a certain pub landlord in Headley Court in 2013. Regards, Nick Griffiths, proud independent company member. And I remember those gigs really, really well, Nick. Here's a mysterious tale from listener James Valamont. James writes, This is not exactly a family story, but I found it unforgettable nonetheless. In 1980, I was on a business trip to Japan. The executives of the Japanese company we visited were around the age that meant they had probably served in World War II, all except for one executive, who was younger. During dinner, somehow the topic of the war came up. The older businessman said that they had served in China and never faced the Americans. This is probably true, considering how the Japanese fought to the death in virtually every battle against the Americans. The younger executive said he was only 10 years old in 1945 and lived in a small community away from any major city. One night, a B-29 crashed near his home. He rushed to the scene of the crash and found no survivors. But inside the plane, he found the body of a woman. He claims that he removed her body and buried her nearby to prevent the local people from disfiguring her. He always wondered why a woman should be on a B-29 bombing raid. Maybe... By that time in the war, the raids were considered milk runs, with very few, if any, casualties. I can imagine that some crewman might have smuggled his girlfriend on board so that she could experience what a bombing raid was really like. I don't know if any war records ever reflected the loss of a woman on board a B-29, or if any woman at a base suddenly went missing. You have a great podcast. Keep up the good work. Sometime, I might write to you about my Uncle Mike, who was a Marine that landed on Iwo Jima. Next, 
Next up is a story from Finlay Coots Britain, whose Scottish grandfather served as a padre in both Chindit expeditions. At 35, he was considerably older than the average soldier and was technically a non-combatant. Decades later, he got some of these recollections typed up. The following is one story that stands out from April 1944. Being blessed with health and strength, I walked as far and carried loads as great as anyone, with a cheerful face. With the consent of authority, I made a point of going out occasionally with separate parties of chindits on aggressive reconnaissance. There was Peter C., for example, aged 21, the battalion's youngest subaltern, and an English public schoolboy who planned to make the army his career. His platoon's numeral, 13, unfortunately reflected its high rate of sickness and deprived him of the opportunity to sparkle to which he aspired. Now came an assignment with a chance to do well. The intention was to cover a roadblock at a place called Thinganda, where an enemy presence had been detected. The plan was to reinforce the understrength platoon with a detached medium machine gun with its own crew to exploit success or cover withdrawal. Contact between the platoon and the detached MMG was to be maintained by 13 platoon sergeant using a walkie-talkie. True to form, number 13 was unlucky again. The platoon sergeant was felled by a bout of malaria. The need for a wireless link man was vital. Why not the padre? Roll accepted. The platoon moved off. It was interrupted halfway on its journey by belated information from a chindit that his mucker had received a Dear John letter from his wife, saying she had got lonely and had taken up with another man. No doubt authentic, but too late at this stage to do other than to tell him to soldier on. We arrived on site, no enemy visible, until the simultaneous discovery that friend and foe were actually cheek by jowl in the enveloping jungle. The ferocity of the opening fire showed the mutual resentment, young Peters the promptest and fiercest. But opportunity was knocking on my door in the shape of what looked like a tree brandishing a rifle. My instinctive reaction was to let fly with the Sten gun which all chindit padres carried for self-protection. Then the tree sidled into the undergrowth and merged with the cover. I've missed him, breathed this suddenly non-belligerent padre, adding for full measure of sincerity, thank God. But my chindit comrades already had alternative employment for me. We Paddy Maguire's do now, sir, crying that he's been hurt, and would somebody couldn't do to help him? Nobody nominated. I'm no gamesman, but I do know that if you get involved playing soldiers or football, it's bad form not to pick up the pass and do the right thing if the play turns your way. Back now to Finlay, who writes, The young subaltern Peter earned an MC but was sadly killed years later at Suez. Also, the dear John was killed in the battle, shot in the chest with a dum-dum bullet. To say my grandfather played down his part in this action is an understatement. He won the MC that day, and we managed to find a citation. It read, On the 17th of April 1944, south of Thinganda, Number 13 Platoon was accompanied by the column Chaplain, Captain the Reverend T. Hawthorne, C.F., who has always been insistent on his requests to be allowed to accompany fighting troops into action and render immediate succour to the wounded. The platoon was attacked by what was clearly seen to be a greatly superior force, and for two hours they held their position under heavy fire, only attempting a withdrawal when the enemy were closing in on three sides for the final assault. Throughout the action, the Reverend Hawthorne not only performed his duty with exemplary devotion, but he eventually organised and was personally responsible for 
the successful evacuation of the wounded under heavy fire. During the greater part of the action, he remained in an exposed position, observing the effects of the platoon's MMG and directing it by wireless. And this story is from listener Rob Good. Hi, we have ways. I wanted to share something after listening to a recent episode. Al had a chuckle about Bomber Command cobbling together enough plays for the so-called Thousand Bomber Raids. It wasn't just the propaganda, friendly Thousand Bomber efforts that needed to be bolstered by operational training units. My great-uncle W.H. Good, known as Wally, was a sergeant pilot aged 21 in 1942 and lost his life flying on a raid while he was still on an OTU. I was able to do a small amount of research into this when I was looking for Wally's war grave. I can recall looking at photos of him beside his Wellington with his crew when I was a boy. I was able to identify that the plane in the photo belonged to an OTU and the dates tie up with the raid where he was shot down. Wally and his crewmates were raiding Darmstadt in the Ruhr on the night of the 31st of July 1942 alongside 630 other planes. Wellingtons were the most numerous type on the raid. I don't know if Wally was a victim of flak or a night fighter, but his was one of 29 planes lost that night. 16 Wellingtons came down and 11 of those came from OTUs. I'm immensely proud of how brave Wally and the rest of the Bomber Command crews were. Whatever people think of the morality of the bomber campaign, it's mind-boggling to imagine what he was doing as a 21-year-old. I know the Wellington was on operations in some theatres at the end of the war, but the aircraft used by OTUs were already pretty tired out. It's perhaps an example of how the country had to make the best of what was available at the time, but I think the bravery of the OTU crews deserves recognition. I'm not aware of examples of the Army or Navy sending soldiers or sailors to the Western Desert or on convoy duty when they were arguably still in training. Keep up the good work. Rob Good. John Nye writes, Dear Alan James, great podcast. I love the family stories. My mum recently reminded me of a couple of hers, which she is happy to share. They describe how the thoughtless selfishness of my grandma once put my mum in danger, but also saved her life on another occasion. They also explain why she's not able to sit through the whole of the closing credits of Dad's army. Mum grew up in Bounds Green, North London, and has memories of the last two or three years of the war. One day, when she was about five, her mother sent her out to buy a reel of cotton from the drapers. Just as she left the house, the air raid signal sounded so she returned home, only to be challenged by her mother as to why she had turned back. The air raid signal, my mum replied, surprised at the question. Never you mind about that, her mother snapped back. I need the cotton. You go ahead and fetch it. You can make it back before they arrive. So mum ended up running down alleyways and streets with the sound of sirens in her ears and panic rising in her chest. When she got to the shop, she found it shut. Fearing her mother more than the Luftwaffe, she banged and banged on the door until finally the shopkeeper appeared on the other side of the glass saying, No, 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 air raid, air raid, go home. Mum ran all the way back, empty-handed and fearing the worst. Well, where is it? demanded her mother. The shop was closed. She wouldn't let me in. My grandma was very annoyed at the lack of cotton and bizarrely sceptical that the shop was shut, suspecting that Mum 
had simply disobeyed her. She took some persuading, but eventually she believed her, and Mum escaped punishment. Ever since this incident, the sound of air raid sirens always turned Mum's stomach with dread fear. Such is her discomfort that now, 70 years later, she always changes the channel before the all-clear sounds at the end of the Dad's Army closing credits. On the plus side, on another occasion, my grandma's selfishness probably saved my mum's life. When she was about six, mum came home from school and said to her mother that she was going round to her friend's house for tea and to play with her friend's new kitten. Oh no, you're not, her mother said. You don't think I've spent all day getting your tea ready for you to go over there, do you? You're not going anywhere. Sit down. And that was that. Later, sat on the settee waiting for Dick Barton, special agent, to come on the wireless, they heard the distinctive sound of a flying bomb approaching. When it was almost on top of them, the engine cut out. Oh my God, that's our lot, said Grandma. What do you mean? asked Mum, not understanding the significance. There was a whistling sound over the roof, followed by a terrific bang, which blew out all the windows and blasted the front door clean off its hinges. The bomb had hit a row of houses across the road, completely demolishing three or four of them, including that of my mum's friend. Mum recalls that the next day in school, there were several empty desks. Thanks to my grandma, my mum's desk was not one of them. Yours sincerely, John Nye. P.S. As a small child, I was fascinated by the big gash in the wooden panel backing the mirror on my grandma's dressing table. It was caused by bomb shrapnel from the blast. You could trace its trajectory across the bedroom to where it almost took a chunk out of the wardrobe door handle. Thus began my affliction. Gary Bircher has a story that illustrates the role of luck in wartime. Hi, love the pod. I've been listening since day one and it just gets better. I'm writing to tell you about the wartime experiences of my wife's grandfather, Danny Rosewell. Like many of his generation, he did not talk about his war for many years and it was only in his later years that he began to tell his wartime story. Sadly, he passed away last year at the age of 104 with much of his story untold. Here are a couple of anecdotes which he told us during those last years that I think you may find interesting. The first does not directly concern him, but is about two of his brothers. As with many families, the brothers were all called up and served in different units and different forces, often not knowing what was happening to each other, or even where the others were. One of his brothers was being transported via a troop-carrying ship. Whilst walking on the deck, he was surprised to see his brother, who was in the Navy, coming towards him. As you can imagine, they were delighted and decided to celebrate. Somehow the sailor managed to acquire a quantity of rum, and the two of them spent the evening drinking and generally catching up. The next morning the sailor was a little worse for wear when reporting for duty and was put on a charge. On being brought before the ship's captain, he was asked to explain himself. He told his tale of the reunion with his brother, at which point the captain told him, In the circumstances, I think you need to go and sleep it off. Don't let it happen again. Nothing more was said about the incident. This, I think, shows the nature of a conscript army in a democracy. A certain amount of leeway would sometimes be allowed. I'm sure that a similar level of tolerance would not be seen in the forces in dictatorships. As an engineer, he was sent to support a unit using what he described as old tanks, perhaps Matildas. When he got to their location, one of the tanks had broken down, and he and another soldier were detailed to take it to a workshop further back from the front line for repair. This they did and promptly returned to the tank unit. 
However, when they got to the location where they had left the unit, there was no sign of anyone. Having searched unsuccessfully for some time, they returned to their own unit to explain what had happened. At this point, they were told that during the few hours that they were gone, the tank unit was surrounded by the enemy and all personnel captured. Had it not been for the broken tank, unfortunate timing, Danny would have spent the rest of the war as a POW. The fortunes of war are decided by such tiny margins. Danny had a varied war, acting as a driver for a general, making one third-sized model Spitfires to act as decoys in Palestine, and landing in Salerno under artillery fire. He served throughout the Italy campaign, including building bridges for armour to cross. We all greatly miss him, and like many of your correspondents, wish that we'd been able to hear more of his stories before we lost him. After a tale of luck, now for a tale of remarkable coincidence from listener Chris Hudson. Dear James and Al, I love the podcast. I've been a listener from the beginning and the family stories have quickly become my favourite part. These shows endorse James's point that the underlying human stories are what is so fascinating about the conflict. Here's a vignette about a chance encounter. France, late summer 1944. My grandfather, Charles Hudson, a schoolteacher in civilian life, but now a captain in the Royal Artillery, is moving his anti-aircraft guns forward to their next position. There's a hold-up. At a crossroads, ahead, the column of guns and a column of tanks have become entangled. Each believe they have priority and right-of-way over the other. As tempers begin to get frayed, Charles is on the crossroads when the lead tank commander suddenly appears from inside his tank. He yells, Charles, move those bloody guns out of our way. The lead tank commander is Charles' brother-in-law, Bill. Neither man knew where the other was in the world. They will not meet again until 1946. Keep up the good work. Chris Hudson. That's it for this week's Family Stories. We hope you've enjoyed them. Once again, they help to illustrate the extraordinary events experienced by so many people during the Second World War. If you've got a family story you'd like considered for use in the show, please do email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Make your subject family stories. Or you can leave your story on our members' site. That's patreon.com slash wehaveways. There's a family stories tab on the site. Thank you so much for listening. See you soon. <laughs>